Let me give you a few places to turn to this morning uh, so you'll be a little quicker on the draw. Uh, book of Malachi, find something and mark that. Go to Matthew, go one book to the left and you're in Malachi. I do want to quote one passage from chapter 1 out of that book. And I'll give you time to do that. After Malachi, run to near the end of the New Testament and find something to mark. Uh, let's see, 1 Peter and then... Uh, a couple of books before that, find something to mark Hebrews chapter 10. So I've given you Malachi, 1 Peter 2, Hebrews 10, and then find your boy back to Romans chapter 12. I know you're not finished yet, but while you are finishing, let me start with an apology uh, from last week. I told you that I was going to give you a word that you never heard before, and I followed that up with giving you the word humility. I don't much like sarcasm from the pulpit. Uh, there's really not much place for that. I love you guys way too much to be sarcastic. Really, that was an overflow of how I spoke to myself through the entire week. I use sarcasm on myself all the time. Uh, but I certainly don't want to use it to you, so I pray that you'll accept my apologies. But I cannot overemphasize the need for you in your life right now to be seeking humility in your hearts as we walk through these passages. It's absolutely critical that you have humility in your hearts just in coming to faith. You can't even come to faith unless you understand your desperate need of Christ and your inability to do anything for yourself in the way to God. And then likewise, you're in desperate need of your humility just to, just to walk in the newness of life because you have to rely on the very strength of Christ and the wisdom of Christ to do so. You still can't do anything for yourself. In fact, the more mature that you become, the more independent on God you're going to realize that you really are, not dependent the more independent you are upon the Lord. And so humility is of the greatest measure. And I thought about this this morning. You remember over in John 13 where the Lord says, a new commandment I give you. Do you remember what that new commandment is? He goes on to say, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have this for one another. What is that? Love. And so we, we recognize love is like the cardinal mark of the Christian, right? Well, when you think about it, you can't separate humility from love because of the kind of love that we're called to have. The kind of love we're called to have is the selfless, sacrificial love of Christ. And in order for you to be selfless and sacrifice yourself for the needs of others, you've got to have humility. And so those two things just are inseparably linked together. So when I, I call you to humility, please find yourself a number of times this week in your quiet time on your knees asking God for humility to allow the Holy Spirit to remind you. I've had to remind myself of that so many times this week. I was about to open my mouth this week and I heard the Lord speak. He said compassion. And I didn't want to use compassion in the moment. I wanted to use correction. 
But I stopped myself by the grace of God. I humbled myself and my words were filled with compassion. So please exercise this this week. Lay down on that bench and get to pumping humility as many times or as many reps as you can possibly get in because you're going to need it walking forward. When we come to Romans 12, you've got to understand, again, this is a key place in the Bible. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the title for chapters 12, 13, 14, and 15. That, that's how important these two passages are. I started to ask Sarah, we did this for release time this week. We printed out my key passage on little flashcards and I passed them out to all the kids. I may do that for you this week, but please beat me to the punch. Put it on your, you know, when you flip your cell phone on this week, turn your iPhone on, have Romans 12, 1 and 2 come up as your screensaver and begin to memorize that and meditate on that and you'll be good to go, I promise, for the next several weeks as we walk through chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, because they all come, they keep coming back to the title, every one of these messages. And so we will really need to hammer down on these first two verses as we walk to this. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 is the necessary response, the necessary response that we are to have to God for what He has done for us in Christ. Romans 12 describes for us worship that is truly worthy of God. It defines for us what it means to be a Christian in the midst of a godless world. Romans 12, 1 and 2 defines for us what it means to follow Christ. Two verses. All of that is accomplished in two verses. Now let me lay it out for you so you'll be able to follow along. Paul's going to give us a spiritual illustration in verse 1. And that's the only thing I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to walk very slowly, methodically, carefully from word to word to word in verse 1 because Paul wants us to see a spiritual illustration. But you roll into verse 2 and it's immediately a concrete expression of that illustration. It's a definitive act that we must take. It's concrete in response to the illustration. He doesn't leave us in vague spiritual illustrations. Sometimes we do that. We as Christians have a tendency to just leave it with the Lord. What in the world does that mean? You know, we do stuff like this all the time. And so he gives us a spiritual illustration, but verse 2, he's like, no, 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 I'll take it on to the concrete action. And then beginning in verse 3 through the next several chapters, it's all practical applications of the concrete action of the spiritual illustration. In other words, we're going to be working out this illustration for, again, weeks and weeks and weeks to come. So we really want to take our time and consider every word as we walk through these verses. Now, the first word in the Greek is a difficult word. It's a difficult word to translate. If you ever do an English study and get out several different translations, every single translation has a different word because everybody's trying to figure out this word. And the word in the NAS, if you have that, is the word urge. Paul writes, I urge you, brethren. It's a very strong word. It's the first word in the sentence, which we'd usually term as the emphatic position. He's not saying, I demand you. He's not saying, I command you. Because if he does that, we've got to go back into the Old Testament. We're back under the law. He can't do that. But nonetheless, it's, it's required and it's extremely strong. And so the NAS uses the word urge. The ESV weakens it and says, I appeal. The NLT is even worse. It says, I plead with you. And by all means, Paul is not pleading with you. He doesn't spend 11 chapters explaining the gospel and then respond by going, please, 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 please do this in response to the mercies of God. That's, 
not at all what Paul's trying to do here. Travis told me, he said, I, I might just quote the King James, which if you have the King James, it's, I beseech you, brethren, which is a really good uh, stroke at trying to get the word right. I think the LSB, and only one or two of you have the Legacy Standard Bible. That's the MacArthur one. He just literally translates it, I exhort you. Now, if I do my job this morning, you'll get a better picture of what he's trying to get at. Exhort gets really close, but when you break the word down into the Greek, I, I like to use the word summons, and I think you'll see why. The word in Greek, the root word is kaleo. If you're taking notes, K-A-L-E-O, and it simply means to call. Now, you and I get calls or summons sometimes. We get court summons. And you know exactly how that works. They summons you, and you're expected to show up. And if you don't show up, there's consequences. But it's not a demand. It's not a command. It's a summons. And you understand that, well, I'm obligated to go to this thing. And so you immediately begin adjusting work, getting somebody to come in for you, and those sort of things. By all means, you're not going to miss this thing because you understand a court summons. And so that's the root word in the Greek. Paul says, I call you, brethren, by the mercies of God. But he doesn't just use that root word. He also puts a prefix on it, P-A-R-A, para kaleo, and para means to come alongside of you as an encourager. And this is a wonderful word. Paul's like, I'm putting my arm around you and I'm summoning you to sacrifice your life to God because of the mercies that you've received in Christ. In fact, I think brethren, he follows that word up with brethren, which means more of a long side sort of a picture. I think Paul is walking that way as he's summoning us to follow him and bringing our lives to Christ and laying them down in his sacrifice to the glory of God. I mean, this is a wonderful word, and you can see why everybody's got a different word because everybody's trying to really get at the root of what Paul's trying to say. But you can also see if somebody's exhorting you and summoning you like that, you've got to have humility to respond. We, we don't do so well with exhortation anymore. I mean, I can explain to you the word. I can go for the grammar and all that sort of thing. I can appeal to you on behalf of the authority of Scripture that the Word of God tells us this. I can appeal to Paul's apostolic authority that he had over the church to do those sort of things. But at the end of the day, exhortation doesn't go very well. I I've tried it a time or two as a pastor. It's okay corporately for me to exhort you, but I found when you exhort somebody one-on-one, -on -one, it, it doesn't go so well. And the reason that it doesn't go so well, in fact, I can think of very few times that it ever did go so well. The reason is, is because we absolutely are filled with pride and think way too much of ourselves. And so if you ever get pulled aside one-on-one -on -one and somebody exhorts you or calls you to do something or in verse 2 to stop doing something, stop being conformed to this world, it's going to be another exhortation. We don't respond so well. Because we want to defend ourselves and justify our actions. And so don't you dare to be telling me what to do. So you can immediately see, in order for you to proceed into these passages and allow them to shape who you are, you're going to have to bend the knee. I'm going to have to bend the knee and allow the Word of God to really speak to my heart and exhort me. 
But it's hard for me to have this sort of attitude towards you even now because I see the beauty and the wonder of these passages. I've absolutely marveled at these and been blown away by these because Paul is going to teach us what worship truly is. And we all have a desire for worship, and it's evident in this church. I mean, we've been trying to fix things in worship that I'll get more closely to in just a minute. But Paul's going to define it for us really in one verse. And I know us all, I know we really want to be true in our worship to God. Well, let me tell you this, it's not that hard. What we're going to find ourselves doing is everything but that one thing that needs to be done. And I know you have experience with this because most of you have kids. You will urge them, plead with them, exhort them to do something. And they'll do everything but. They'll even do things to try to impress you. Here, Mommy, I drew you a picture. But you're like, that's great. But that's not what I told you to do. They'll do everything, run around, picking up and putting up everything but the one thing. And so when it comes to worship, we have to stop and realize we're doing everything but the one thing. Because the one thing will really require humility and the death of self, and there's no getting around it. So we really need to apply ourselves to the understanding of these passages. We really need to seek humility from the Lord because we really need to respond to Paul, Paul's exhortation appropriately. Now the motivation is absolutely wonderful. Since God has accomplished everything for us in Christ in order that we might be accepted by God, we are to heed the words of His exhortation and offer our lives to God as a sacrifice. But the problem is, I think... Many times we're motivated by the wrong reasons, and I don't want to ever be guilty of motivating you by the wrong reasons. And since I use the word guilty, let me go on with that particular word. Many people do things out of guilt. Paige and I have had this conversation about people we know. They're, they're totally motivated by guilt. They do so much, but the reason they're doing these things is because they're motivated by guilt. If they don't do them, they feel guilty. And so everything that they do is based on guilt. If you're that person, that's a miserable way to live your life. You need to get over that. That's not the way to go at all, and it's certainly not the way to offer yourselves to God. Well, I just feel guilty because He's done so much for me. I need to do something for Him. Don't worship God in any way, shape, or form being motivated by guilt. That's the wrong reason. Don't do these things motivated by fear. I know a lot of things that I tell you in the Word that we need to keep by the fear of God, but this is the worship of God, so let us don't worship God out of fear. Let's don't offer our lives as a sacrifice to God because we're absolutely terrified by Him. Don't do that. Let's don't worship God by offering our lives as a sacrifice because we feel obligated. We, I'm obligated to do this, so I'm going to do this. I mean, I could talk about you coming to church that way. I, I know we come to church that way sometimes. I just feel obligated. I, I saw joy Saturday, and if I don't go Sunday, I'm just going to feel bad about it. I just feel obligated. We need to go. Don't do that. We certainly don't want to meet this uh, exhortation by the Apostle Paul because we're trying to earn something from God. Don't offer yourself as a living sacrifice because you want to be blessed. I feel like the church is just filled with that kind of teaching these days and it's absolutely not healthy. 
I just want a blessing. I just came for a blessing. No, the reason that we offer ourselves to God is because of the mercies that we've received from the Lord. That's our motivation. It's the mercies that we've received. And if we worship God and truly worship God and offer our lives as a sacrifice to Him based on mercies, then our expression of worship is going to be absolutely filled with joy and thanksgiving. It's truly going to be praise because I'm doing it because of the manifest mercies that I've received from God. Now certainly that will change the way that you come to church on Sunday morning. And certainly that would change the way you sing on Sunday morning. But Paul's not talking about those things. Paul's talking about you laying your life down on the altar and giving yourself wholly to God. And if it's if it's motivated by mercies, you're much more willing to do this than for any other reason. So hopefully all of my exhortations from the pulpit will, will come to you based on the mercies of God, what we've received from God through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's giving us life everlasting. He's giving us hope everlasting. He's given us the forgiveness of sin, all sin. And so based on the mercies of God, we are to offer ourselves as a sacrifice. So we need to not only understand what the Apostle Paul is telling us to do, but we also have to have the right heart attitude to do it. Again, we're not soldiers coming up here to obey some command. If you do it that way, you might get it done, but you're going to miss the point that Paul's trying to make. I want, you to be, I want you to do this, but I want you to be motivated by the right reasons. So what is the proper response that Paul wants us to do in response to the mercies of God? Look what he says there in the passage in verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies. Now, I told you I was going to stop at every word, so here I go. I'm going to stop on the word present. And if you're wondering about the verb, way to go. I hope you are. It is a verb, and obviously he's talking about the idea of sacrifice. But it's the most peculiar verb tense. You would think it would be an absolutely continuous aspect, but it's not. It's in the aorist, and we don't have an aorist in English. And sometimes aorist means one-time, single, effective action that we offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice. But Paul's not doing that here. He's only concerned with the act itself. He's only concerned with us doing it. And so he leaves it in the verb tense hanging there so we can see that he is wanting us to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Now we know the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were daily. I mean, sin had to be atoned for, sacrifices had to be brought, and they were brought all the time, and blood was being spilled all the time. And so we, when we begin to understand Paul's spiritual illustration and bring it into a New Testament understanding, when we offer our lives to God, how many times in the day am I going to have to do this? That's what I'm asking myself. Because I'm thinking in every experience, in every circumstance, in every situation, I'm going to have to remind myself to offer my body to God as a living sacrifice, humble myself, and obey what it is that I know I'm supposed to do, just like it happened to me this week. As my mouth opened and the Spirit of God put His hand over my mouth and said, Hang on. Compassion. 
And it was time to make an offering. Because I could have moved his hand away from my mouth and responded because my mind was loaded with the words. My mouth was loaded with the word. I just had to pull the trigger, right? But I didn't by the grace of God. I unloaded the gun and allowed the Spirit of God to speak through me and offer compassion. You see, so when he says to present your bodies, you need to understand, man, this is going to be all day, every day. This is going to be defining of life for me. This is going to affect how I think. This is certainly going to, exp- this is certainly going to change the words that I say. This is going to change what I do with my hands and my feet. This is going to change how I act, where I go, what I watch. This is going to affect every area of life. And you're exactly right, which means true worship changes life. Now back to the idea of worship. We set times and places. And even though we set times and places, you guys are always late. But that's okay because this is not true worship. What you can't be late on is true worship because true worship changes every part of life. Don't be late on that. Because if you're late on that, I've already said those words. If you're late on true worship, I've already done that thing that I knew I wasn't supposed to do. If I'm late on worship, I've already thought that thing that I knew I wasn't supposed to dwell on. You can't be late there. You can be late here. But you can't be late there. We've got to understand when He's telling us to present, He's telling us, From a time perspective, it's all the time. It's every time. There is no time that you won't. But notice what it is that we are to present. We're to present our bodies. Now, if you've been on Wednesday night, you're already loaded. You know exactly what this means. Paul's using Old Testament sacrificial imagery. The Jews would have understood this right to a T. We struggle with this because when we hear the word body, we immediately separate ourselves. That's the way Gentiles or Greeks think. But a Jew didn't think about separation. A Jew thought about whole. So when we present the body, we present the mouth. We present the eyes. We present the ears. We present the hands. We present the feet. We present every part of our bodies. From the inside out, we present them to God. There's no part that we leave off the altar. Think about a burned sacrifice. They would bring that sacrifice, it would be consumed by the flames, and then if I told you, okay, go up there and get what's left over, you'd look at me and go, what are you talking about? That was a burnt offering. It's gone. That's the point. There's nothing that you've withheld from the altar as you brought yourselves to God. There's not that one little thing, that one little vice that you kept off the altar. Don't don't do that. Don't think that. I know you do because I do. This is how you justify that. Yeah, but I do this, I do this, and I do that. Therefore, this one thing, I mean, it's not going to kill me. This one thing, nobody's going to know. Don't, don't do that because you're missing the point of the body. You're missing the point of the burnt sacrifices. There's nothing left. The wind blows the ashes off the altar and it's gone. There's no parts remaining. And so when he says this idea of presenting the body, you need to understand that he's talking about it, it's all that we are, it's all that we do, it's all that we say, it's all that we think that is, is offered to God as a sacrifice. 
Now, the word sacrifice. Let me spend just a minute here. Because, you know, I, I, I normally save this for the end because if you get this, you got the whole thing. But it's so good and it, it's not mine, but it's absolutely good. And I, I need you to pause in your brain and listen to what I'm about to say. You belong to God by way of creation, right? This is, this is elementary math. This is what I teach release time kids. You belong to God by way of creation. He made you. Therefore, he owns you. But as Christians, I can go on and say this to you. We belong to God by way of redemption. Not just creation as a, cre as a, as a person, not just creation as a human being, but we belong to God by way of redemption. He's bought us. He's paid a price for us. In fact, Paul will say this in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Listen to this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? Do you not know that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price? So you're, you belong to God by way of creation. You belong to God by way of redemption. But listen, this is what Paul's after in, in Romans 12.1. He wants you to belong to God by way of free will sacrifice of your life. He wants you to belong to God because you've given yourself to God freely, joyfully. That makes a chill go up my spine. It did it just then, and it's done it every time I've had this thought working through these passages. Y'all, that's worship. He made you, He owns you. He bought you, He owns you. But you know what He wants from you? For you to come to Him and give yourself to Him as a free will offering and say, God, take me. And to Paul, now that is worship. In fact, we'll see in just a second when we get to Hebrews 10, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did. I have come to do your will, a body you have prepared for me. And willingly, the Lord Jesus Christ laid down His life as a sacrifice. And so Paul's saying, by the mercies of God and that sacrifice that justified you and made you right before God, now you respond to those mercies by laying your life down willingly and joyfully. And Paul says, when you do that, now you know what worship is. Again, we run around doing everything but the thing. But I've, came to the, I've come to this conclusion because I've talked so much about worship. I just really need to stop talking about worship. Because until we are willing to freely lay down the entirety and wholeness of our lives before God, we don't know anything about worship. Churches need to stop talking about worship. Certainly need to stop talking about music styles. For goodness sakes, what a foreign thing to the Apostle Paul. Are you kidding me? You guys are talking about music styles and I'm trying to tell you that genuine worship is when you yourself alone come before God and give Him your life as a sacrifice? How'd you get here? A sense that the Apostle Paul would say to us. Who led you out in left field like this? You guys don't know anything about worship. So Paul gives us three words here to help us understand something about this sacrifice. And I noticed a lot of translations 
mess this up too. There's actually three words that we talk about in relationship to our sacrifice. It's living, it's holy, and it's acceptable. So let's spend the rest of our time working through these three words and you'll understand the significance of what Paul's trying to say in regard to our sacrifice in order that we might worship rightly. Now, first of all, this idea of living. What a contrast. Because the illustration is Old Testament worship. And in Old Testament worship, the sacrifice had to die. That was the purpose of the sacrifice. That was the function of the sacrifice. The sacrifice had to die in order for it to be useful because it was going to offer atonement for sin. Of course, we know that it didn't really, that was pointing toward the great sacrifice of Christ. But if the thing didn't die, if the animal didn't die, if the blood wasn't shed, it wasn't useful. The worship wasn't accomplished, you understand. But that's not the sacrifice we offer anymore. Because there's been one death, one for all, our sacrifice, usefulness, is not in its death. The sacrifice of our life, the usefulness, the purpose is in its living. It's not useful anymore if it's not living. Just like in the Old Testament, the sacrifice wasn't useful until it died. Until that last drop of blood rolled out of its body and its heart started to beat, stopped beating, and its breath finally stopped being drawn, at that point, the sacrifice accomplished what its purpose was. But that's not the case with us. We're not accomplishing the purpose of our sacrifice unless we're living. So we have to think about this in relationship to living because who made us living? Was it not Christ Himself? Now go back with me to Romans chapter 6 because I want you to see this. Romans chapter 6, look with me at verse 1. Paul writes this, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Verse 2, have you lost your ever-loving mind? It's my translation. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in what? Newness of life. In other words... The first thing that the Lord Jesus Christ does for us is to make our sacrifice acceptable to God by making it living. And because He's making it, made it living, it is useful to God. Apart from the work of Christ, our sacrifice is not useful to God. A person who hasn't come to faith in Christ can't worship God. None of their sacrifices will be accepted because they're dead. Their good works are not, not accepted by God. They're dead works. There's nothing that they can offer to God that's acceptable because He needs a living sacrifice. And it's through the gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken us out of death and brought us into life and made our worship acceptable to God by making it living. So when you think about this from a spiritual perspective, that's the first thing you got to do is stop and praise Jesus because He's made it so that you can worship God. He's made you living. 
But not only has He made you living, you've got to do what He's already done. Now you've got to live in Christ or walk in Christ. Again, if it's not living, it's not useful. So we can draw some obvious conclusions here. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 and 9. He said, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You see, it's a necessity that you're living because you've got to live amongst the dying people. You're Christ's representative. Paul would go on to say in that same chapter, you're ambassadors for Christ. You have to be living because they're dead. Which is interesting because a lot of people, you know, the Amish have moved in around here. A lot of people have remarked about that and the way that they're living. But you hopefully you realize that they're missing the very point. We've been made alive in Christ so we can be around adulterers and coveters and swindlers. So we can be around the dead in order that they might be attracted to life. He didn't make us living so we can hide. Now don't get me wrong. I'd love to take all of you and all of your kids and all of your families and plant you in St. John, run everybody off, and we spend the rest of our days eating shrimp and playing in the sand. That'd be awesome. It really would. But it's not the time for that. And the reason it's not the time for that is because people are dying all around us. Spiritually dying and being separated from God forever. Therefore, we have to be living and live in Christ so they can be drawn to the light and life that we have in the Lord. He made us living. Now go live, right? Turn with me to 1 Peter 2 and you can really see this. If you've got it marked, if you don't, for the sake of time, you don't have to. But notice with me 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice with me verse 9. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his, into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice what he says in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles or the lost so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they watch them or observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, when God draws them near, and they've seen your life and they've reflected upon your life, how you live differently, how you live in Christ now, they'll be drawn to Christ because of the beauty of it, because of the wonder of it, because of the goodness of it. You see, it's absolute necessity that we be living as a sacrifice because Christ has already made us living. The second thing, let's go on, is the word holy. The sacrifice that we offer to God is holy. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Because you have to ask the question, how in the world 
could the sacrifice of a sinner ever be considered holy or right with God? The explanation of that comes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 through 10. Notice what Christ has done on our behalf. Therefore, when He comes into the world, the Lord Jesus, He says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, those sacrifices of animals meaning, but a body you have prepared for me. The Son of God took on flesh. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. All those Old Testament sacrifices never did any good. Then I said, freely I would add, Behold, I have come, it is written of the book, it is, I'm sorry, it is written in the scroll of the book, it is written to me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them. Verse 9, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first sacrifices in order to establish the once and all for second one. And by this will, we have been sanctified or made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's how you were made holy. You don't make yourself holy. You can't make yourself holy. But I find it fascinating in Hebrews chapter 10, the thing that Paul is exhorting us to do is the thing that Christ has already done. And how marvelously and wonderfully he did this thing. And you talk about humility to do this thing? Well, let's go to Philippians 2. You, you, you know what that says. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. And He took on the nature of a man. He humbled Himself by becoming a servant. You see how humility and worship goes together now? How humility and love, you can't separate those two things. And He willingly offered His body to God as a sacrifice, but it was need be that His sacrifice die in order that our sacrifice might be considered living and holy. And once again, Jesus has made us holy. Jesus has made our worship acceptable to God. But we got to go on. Because you're freely going to offer yourselves to God. And not only do you freely offer yourselves to God as living, meaning I'm going to live in this newness of life, you freely offer yourself to God as holy, meaning you're going to set yourself apart for God. There's the struggle. I know there's the struggle because there's my struggle. That word holy. Not in the quality of who we are, but in the wholeness of who we are. Because you've got to set it apart. And you can't do that apart from the Spirit of God. You know what you, you'll set yourself apart for, separated from the Spirit of God? You'll set yourself apart for yourself. You, you do it every time. You do it every day. Like clockwork, it's your default switch. You reset every morning and you get up and you set yourself apart for yourself. But that's not true worship. You've been made holy, sanctified, set apart for the purposes of God. And to worship God truly is to willingly and freely 
set your life apart for God in every detail. Again, in every word, in every thought, in every action, I'm going to sanctify and set it apart for the purposes of God. Can't think of the ministry now, but Steve was talking about uh, Van Horn. Is that right? Dr. Van Horn. He's almost 80. And he's still going to foreign countries, training pastors how to exegetically walk through the text and get false gospels and false teachings. He started in Africa, but it's probably to a half a dozen or more countries now. And he's got young pastors all over the place. And the Lord started this through that one man and his wife many, 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 many years ago. And he's still going strong because he said, when I consecrated my life to God, I consecrated my life to God. And it will be used by God until I draw my last breath. Man, that's a life well spent. But that's the very thing that Paul is exhorting us and encouraging us to do. That's what this means. And until we do that very thing, we don't know anything about worship. We just do everything but the thing. But Paul is urging us to lay down our lives as a living as a holy sacrifice. Now, please don't get confused. Let me walk through this again. It was the sacrifice of His body, not our body, that makes us right with God. It was the sacrifice of His body that made our body acceptable to God. It was the sacrifice of His body that made the sacrifice of our body true worship to God. It was the sacrifice of His body that was poured out unto death so that the sacrifice of our body could be poured out unto life. What He did made what we do acceptable to God. But it's been made that way so you can offer it to God. And then we come to this last word, acceptable. It was the Old Testament imagery, again, where we learn the most about this. I had you turn to Malachi, so if you're there, go with me to Malachi chapter 1. You'll see exactly what I'm talking about. In the Old Testament, it was terribly offensive to God for anybody to bring an offering or a sacrifice that was, I guess the word I should use is defective. He would say in Deuteronomy 15, if any such is lame or blind or has any sorry or any sort of serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. But when you get into Malachi, God is angry because they've been bringing sacrifices to him that were not acceptable. Notice verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant would honor his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priest who despise my name. Now how in the world were the preachers despising God? You say, how do we do this? Verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why don't you offer that stuff to your governor? Do you think he'd be pleased with you? Or would he receive it kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to you? With such an offering on your part, will he not receive you kindly, says the Lord? 
Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates that you would might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. In other words, the one thing that I've given you in order that you might worship me, the sacrifices, I ask that those sacrifices might be without any spot, stain, or blemish. So here you come in the offering of your sacrifices, and what in the world have you brought to me? You brought to me the stuff you don't want. Does that not shame your heart? Have you ever done that? Somebody has need of something, and you go looking about the house for something you can do without, in fact, don't want, been looking for an opportunity to get rid of. Well, as pitiful as that is, that's exactly what they were doing to God. And you need to understand that apart from Christ, that's exactly what you would do to God every day of your life. Every single sacrifice would be pitiful, unacceptable, and offensive to God. But in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, you don't have to go back there. This is what it says, For by one offering He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In other words, again, by the work of Christ, you've been made living, you've been made holy, and you've been made acceptable. So here's the call. Go live. Go set yourself apart for God. And go be found what this word also means. Pleasing. That word gives me chills too. Have you ever thought about that? I pray for that on Sunday morning. That our worship, of course I'm just thinking time and place when I pray this, but that our worship would be found pleasing to the Lord. Can you imagine, have you considered the fact that you can live a life that's pleasing to the God who created the heavens and the earth? I don't know that I can say that without snickering. Because that's my first... Are you, you talking to me? That's my first response. Yeah, I'm talking to you because it's what Christ has done, not what you've done. But because of what He's done, you can live as a sacrifice. You can set your life apart as a sacrifice. You can live in such a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Now every bit of this that we're supposed to do based on the mercies of God to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, once again, all that is in the context of worship because notice the end of verse 1. Present your bodies living, holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, you probably noticed if you've got a different translation to me, everybody translates spiritual differently. And I won't go through all those words, but I think the most effective word is, is, is simply this. This is truly worship. Which means, listen, we can get all the forms right. Angels could fill every empty seat. I'm looking at this. You know, the sanctuary is like heavy on this side this morning. But the Bible speaks about angels in worship with us. Every seat right now could be filled with angels. They could be standing in the hall waiting to worship God. We could sing all the right songs in all the right ways. We could pray Scripture from beginning to end. We could make offerings that spill out of the plate and just fall on the floor. We just step on it as we leave. 
The preaching can be so powerful and faithful and full of the Spirit. But we haven't gotten to worship until you freely, willingly, joyfully, thankfully offer yourself to God. And when you've done that, you know what it means to worship the Lord. Isn't it interesting what somebody will say to you uh, Monday morning? How was worship Sunday? I hope tears roll down your face when you get asked that. Because what they really are asking you, and they haven't a clue, but what they really are asking you, so have you offered yourself to the Lord as a living and holy sacrifice? That's the question. And you're the only one that can answer that. Because that is the very thing that we're called to do. And when we begin to do that, willingly and joyfully, we're going to begin to know Christ in ways we've never known Him before. You know what this time will be? This is the beautiful part of that. This will be the time where we can't wait to get together corporately out of an overflow of how we've lived Monday through Saturday. I thought about this, and, you know, I was the one that kind of set this in motion, our confession, before worship to get ourselves right. And I thought as I was studying through this, you talk about waiting until the last minute. How last minute can I get? Sometimes I encourage you all to settle down on Saturday night and get your minds and your heart right and get ready for Sunday morning. But again, are you really going to put it off five days? You know how to get ready for this time? This evening. This evening will get you ready for next week as you willingly offer your lives to God. And when you get up on Monday morning and you find yourself on your knees as you willingly offer your lives to God, I don't care if you're fixing water lines. I don't care if you're building I don't care if you're in the chicken house. None of that matters. It's not the particular things that you do. It's how you do them in Christ that Paul's driving at. He's not asking you to quit your jobs. He's not asking you to move to Africa. He's simply asking you to take a measure of your life and, and, and ask yourself the question, are you going to hold on to this thing for yourself? Or are you going to make the sacrifice for the sake of worship? Man, what an opportunity we have. What an understanding we've been given from the text. And again, I'm going to make it very concrete for you next week because it's a particular thing that we must do, particular. But you understand the spiritual. You understand the spiritual well enough to do it with your whole heart. Let's pray.